Hello, I'm Simon Whistler. You're watching the Today I Found Our YouTube channel. And in the video today, we're looking at when men started getting circumcised. Having served variously as a mark of virility, servility, and gentility, circumcision has throughout the centuries worn many symbolic hats. While anthropologists disagree as to the definitive origins of circumcision, the earliest hard evidence comes from the first ancient Egyptian mummies of considerable vintage around 2300 BC. That being said, Egyptian paintings date circumcision to centuries prior, depicting ritual circumcision as a prerequisite to entering the priesthood. Contention remains as to whether circumcision was a sign of pride rather than prejudice amongst the ancient Egyptians. While popular among the elite, forced circumcision was inflicted on captured Phoenician and Jewish slaves as a badge of dishonor more practical or rather less lethal than castration. Whatever its initial origins, by 1800 BC, the Jews were practicing circumcision for religious reasons, in deference to God's religious injunction to Abraham as contained in the Torah. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. That's from Genesis. Though the religious reasons have remained ostensibly the same for thousands of years, the procedure has changed rather sharply. The original practice, Millar, was abbreviated to only the removal of the tip of the foreskin. The decision to snip beyond the tip lay in the cultural collision between Greco-Roman and Jewish cultures. While the Jews considered circumcision among matters theistic, the Greeks regarded it as an aesthetic faux pas. As Hellenic culture became the fashion throughout the Roman Empire, Jews seeking to avoid discrimination and compete in Roman games sought to emulate their hosts by stretching the foreskin and tying it closed. However, Jewish elders, rather unsympathetic to the when-in-Rome justification of the blasphemous procedure, instated the Brit Perea around 140 AD. With this, the circumcision procedure now included removing moving the foreskin to beyond the ridge of the glands, ensuring all Jews would be fully shorn of Roman identity. With circumcision having assumed a distinctly Jewish connotation, it became grounds for anti-Semitic discrimination. History is littered with examples such as the Seleucid king Antelicus occupying Jerusalem in 169 BC, who made the Brit pariah punishable by death. The Roman author Suetonius records court proceedings wherein a 90-year-old man suspected of evading the Jewish tax was stripped naked for what must have been the Roman take on strict scrutiny. After 50 BC, circumcision remained, at least popularly speaking, a largely Jewish affair until controversy ignited among early Christians. It was unclear whether the gospel required circumcision among converts, which would thus restrict Christianity to Jews or Gentiles waiting to undergo the procedure. Ultimately, it was decided that circumcision was not a prerequisite to conversion and the Catholic Church maintained a degree of hostility towards the practice which would set the tone for circumcision until the 19th century. The Greco-Roman aversion towards circumcision, once heavily salted with anti-Semitism, persisted long after unruly Gauls had overrun the empire. Indeed, by the time Britain had matured to imperial status, explorers who had been busily exporting British commerce and colonial returns with salacious tales about the barbaric tribes that lay at the extremities of the empire and the varieties of circumcision practiced within. Sir Richard Burton wrote of one such procedure that tears off the epidermis from the cuts around the groin and flays the testicles and penis, ending with amputation of the foreskin. 
Certain Islamic peoples, such as those of the Mughal Empire, introduced the British to circumcision in a rather more unceremonious fashion, claiming the foreskins of vanquished British troops willy-nilly on the battlefield. Despite the initial close shaves between the British and other cultures, they eventually spearheaded a change in attitude about circumcision. Partially inspired by a sense of cultural cosmopolitanism or fear of troops losing their heads under threat of battlefield circumcision, the British began a revival of circumcision. The social and hygienic values of circumcision were well entrenched during the Victorian era, with British royalty beginning a practice of circumcising their heirs, the peerage following suit, and the change in attitudes radiating downwards through British society and the empire. This is not to say that the religious element of circumcision subsided. Indeed, during both world wars, the political and racial subtext of circumcision re-emerged with bloody consequence. Forced circumcision accompanied the massacre of Armenians under the Ottoman Empire, while circumcision served again as a potentially lethal marker of Jewish identity under Nazi Germany. In the present day, however, racial and class controversies regarding circumcision have cooled. Nonetheless, the demographic patterns and medical consensus regarding circumcision have remained far from settled. The size of the circumcised British population has dropped by about 30% from its heyday to roughly 4% today. The United States has remained steady with over half of the male population circumcised, and Israel has, unsurprisingly, become the circumcision capital of the world with a nearly 100% circumcision rate. Even with largely circumcised populations, health debates rage. Critics of circumcision cite an absence of evidence vis-a-vis -vis the supposed health benefits of circumcision and list a litany of disadvantages such as pain to the child, infection, urinary complications, enhanced risk of disease, and in extremely rare cases, even death from complications due to the circumcision. One in about 50,000 or eight babies every year in the U.S. die as a result of this procedure. Defenders of the practice, which includes the American American Academy of Pediatrics, however, claim that the supposed health benefits outweigh the risks to the minority. They cite greater immunity from sexually transmitted diseases and genital cancer, as well as the avoidance of certain general hygiene problems. Despite the cut and thrust of circumcision politics, male circumcision will almost certainly remain a point of pride and tradition among certain groups, primarily for religious reasons, but also on a much lesser scale for aesthetic reasons. This was a viewpoint humorously represented presented by the character of Ellen on Seinfeld when she said of seeing an uncircumcised penis, I have no face, no personality. <laughs> it was like a Martian. So I really hope you enjoyed that video. If you did, please do give us a like below and don't forget to subscribe. Also over there on the right are a couple of other videos you might enjoy if you enjoyed this one. And thank you for watching. Welcome to the show. I think you might need to pull up a chair. Um, funny story. Yesterday, I was finally getting to the um, part about jewelry stores, you know, with the word Jew in it. Quite a fascinating story. And don't know how it happened, but somehow, maybe I'll remember as I'm going along here, and this is the advantage to working in silence, right? I just started wandering around. And there was a big strike here at the Kellogg's cornflakes plant, okay? And you're thinking, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, um, there was a big strike, 
and I don't even quite know where to get started here. Um, there's a lot to unpack, okay? And um, so I put the jewelry show to the side, and um, that's a fascinating story, but it's about robbing us and harming us, right? So let's get to the part that's still going on today, okay? Um, so I was looking at this. I've been following the Kellogg's strike in um they're in Battle Creek, Michigan. A lot goes on in that state too, right? Um, so anyways, what was going on was that workers were striking for a fair wage. And as the strike was going on, the um, what was going on was that Kellogg's kept offering them horrible packages. And the sticking point for this strike, as I understand it, I wasn't in the meeting so I can't verify it, but I, I think this part is true. What the main point of the strike was, was that they would not accept the first deals because that did not include the other people. So, for example, the first deal that Kellogg's kept wanting to push was, we'll pay for you and your people and give you an increase and you health benefits and stuff, but we won't do it for the new people. So... That was a sticking point in the strike. So it's very good to see people actually standing up for each other in this country, right? So that was a sticking point, that people would not accept the deal without including the other people, which is very unusual behavior in this country, I must admit. It, this, this country is nothing but a grab and run, okay? So anyway, so, yeah, so the Kellogg's deal. So, <laughs> so anyway, so I'm following this strike, and... They made an agreement yesterday, which is phenomenal, and or yesterday, the day before, whatever. But what happened was, and I think this is true. Now, whether it was egged on by the CIA, I don't know. But what happened was the Internet bombed Kellogg's application process. What they did was people were ticked off because of the American favorite cereal. <laughs> You'll hear the ads at the end here. Um, what happened was was that... Kellogg's was recruiting for people to replace the people who they were going to ditch, okay? Because Kellogg's came out and said, screw you, we're not going to pay you anymore. We're going to hire people to take your place. Well, people on Reddit and stuff went crazy, and they did some pretty clever things. What they did was they, um, they had an application set up at Kellogg's site, right? So what they did was they came up with coding, and they bombed the site with so many applicants that they couldn't access any of the other applicants. So they basically flooded them <laughs> and took them down. So I hope that part's true because it would kind of make me feel a little bit more just encouraged today to think that people actually care in this country, right? So anyway, so yeah, um, so that's how Kellogg's happened. So I don't know. I think I was looking at the history of Kellogg's and why I was looking. I don't even remember, but... Um, and then I ran across the real history of Kellogg's, and I thought, whoa, 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 whoa. Kellogg's, <laughs> Kellogg's is about eugenics, that friendly breakfast cereal. If this isn't an example of what I say about evil coming packages, help. Jeez, I, I, don't, I really don't know what to say. And there's a big history with Kellogg's. He had a big fight with his brother and all that. I'm not going to get into all that stuff, but um, yeah, they actually started out thinking that cornflakes would cleanse the bowel, okay? And then they had these health clinics. I would encourage you to look up these places on your own because these are massive operations they had set up, all by the people that started Kellogg's Cornflakes. <laughs> and he was heavily involved in eugenics. So 
let me work my way around here. You know, his main thing was he was anti, well, here, here's how they package things, right? They packaged this whole thing with circumcision as a way to discourage people from masturbating. See how the solution always is worse than the problem? It wasn't a problem, but their solution is always deadly, right? So, anyway, so let me get down here to this part. Oh, and also, I was looking, before I get going here, I was looking more into those old buildings. Well, first of all, you got to give me a better source than a bunch of people on YouTube, okay? And the other thing is, is that uh, all of those buildings primarily are sketches and stuff like that. And it's just a big advertising campaign. It's just to get money out of you and control your time. So, um, for example, those mental institutions, well... <laughs> They just point at them and say, yep, that was a mental institution. Well, how do you know that? Just because it says mental institution on it? Maybe a mental institution sound better than human experimenting, right? Maybe the fact that, um, you know, <laughs> that was what they were doing and everything is dual, right? So, yeah, because I looked into it further and I can draw a conclusion that in that era, supposedly... Mental institutions were essentially the same thing as jails, okay? So it was a combined deal. It was nut wards and prisoners in the same building because they were all treated basically the same. And how are we treated any differently now? Well, I'd argue none, right? So these buildings were really big. So I don't know. They could have had prisoners and um, mental patients in one section they could have been doing massive experiments on people going the other section I mean, there's a lot of possibilities with those buildings just consider who your sources are because for example the bohemian grove thing when i finally looked at that the source for that was alex jones okay then the other source for the 5g thing well 5g is rolling out next month in this country okay Where, where's the 5g people where, where are they yelling well, oh, I got it. They're, they're, they're now worried about old buildings and vaccines, right? Well, it's all to diffuse your time. What's going on right now? Well, um, children are being flipped. And we have a tiered society right now, so you might want to have a seat for this one, okay? Have you ever noticed all this talk about mutants? You know, teenage mutant engines, all that kind of stuff about mutants? Well, they're marking our DNA, okay? And probably Andy and I are probably the best experts in the whole world to identify mutant body styles at this point, okay? But it is all over the place. And that explains a lot of things. It explains, and this is all against, against people's will, so let's not get on any kind of rampage that anybody did anything. This was completely against children's will. And you will know more when I get into the circumcision deal, okay? So against the children's will, how this just operates here, right? So anyway, so, um, yeah, so what's going on is through vaccines and different methods, they have been mutating our genes. Then ask yourself, well, who's in charge of our gene data and stuff, our ancestry and stuff? Well, that's controlled by them, right? No major flags for you, right? Um, yeah, so... Through time, our body shapes have been changing and fertility rates and all that. We have a tiered system. I think it's looking at now that we have the people that you see on the screen and that are in charge and stuff, 
they basically all look like they were flipped as babies, okay? And there's another group of people who have been flipped against their will as babies via probably vaccines, other medical treatments, who are part of the society here in the United States. How many of them? I would say, excuse my friends, a shitload of them, okay, in this country. And, yeah, there's a lot of them. And um, I don't know. I, I Hopefully I'll have some time to sit down and really figure it all out. But right now I'm not guessing. I'm not thinking out loud. I'm telling you we have two classes of people. And, you know, the other interesting thing about this circumcision business is that is another way to mark people, right? Because who gets circumcision? Well, Jewish people do, right? And it seems kind of funny that, you know, the huge percentage of men in this country who have been circumcised, which is a Jewish tradition, okay? So, yeah, um, <laughs> this is a lot to unpack. And remember, if you're a mother and you had children and your child was circumcised, try not to lose orbit over this, okay? Because none of this was done with any of our compliance or anything that we even randomly would think about, okay? Because remember, up until, you know, I mean, we've been tricked for so long that don't take this into blaming yourself at this point, okay? Because it happened to just about everybody. And that's why all this garbage with the focus on this vaccine and all that, because that removes any thinking, any time put into, hmm, how did all these people become mutants? Well, I think it was the vaccines. Well, for example, I only had, I was only exposed to two vaccines. And I could pretty much look now at the ratio of increase in vaccines and the general population of when these mutant figures were coming in. And it's, it's been going on for an, ever, ever since the beginning. Because if you haven't heard me say anything, this country is their eugenics project, okay? What they have up their sleeves, I don't know, but it's it's pretty obvious to me. So, how did all this stuff get going? Well, to understand, the guy's name is, there was two brothers, J.H. Kellogg's, okay? And I'll be bouncing around as usual a little bit. You know, in a perfect world, I'd have a team of research assistants, like all those fake history people. They have teams of people helping them out. I should be able to hand this off to a research assistant and say, hey, would you put this in chronological order for me? But no, so bear with me, okay? So to understand, there was two brothers. J.H. is the one we're going to focus on, okay? And you might want to go read their crazy backstory. It's not funny enough to tell you here, okay? Just stupid. Um, but anyway, so J.H. Kellogg is a brother we're looking at. His beliefs around the world, he found himself in. It helps to look at his personal beliefs. So I looked at his personal beliefs, okay? He was a vocal member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. After gaining his medical degree, which, by the way, he got it at uh, Bellevue, <laughs> the now Dr. Kellogg would go on to lead the Battle Creek Sanatorium in Michigan, which was owned and operated by the Seventh-day Adventist. This thing gets a little mushy with when the church owns it, when he owns it, but, you know, I'll just tell you what I know. Some details aren't really worth figuring out, right? The church, San excuse me, the church, that would be the Seventh-day Adventist, that must be where they get that number seven from, right? Doesn't the Statue of Liberty have seven prongs on it? Anyway, so 
The church stands outside many mainstream Christian viewpoints, focusing much of its attention on the second coming, second coming of Jesus Christ, as well as promoting healthy eating and (laughs) vegetarianism and encouraging members to be chaste, to abstain from alcohol and smoking, and critical for Kellogg that they abstain from any form of masturbation. Evil comes packaged as help here, kids. It may seem an odd thing for a church to fixate on, but they were by no means the first in generations of theologians that had debated this issue before them. Kellogg was distinctively on the anti-masturbation side of the argument. Through his support from the church and position as director of the Battle Creek Sanatorium, he was able to implement a great deal of church policy into his treatment of patients. Battle Creek Sanatorium. It is a world-renowned health resort in Battle Creek, Michigan. It started in 1866. Hear these numbers? 1866. On health principles advocated by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and from 1876 to 1943, was managed by Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. It is commonly referred to as the SAN, S-A-N, it was called, and it flourished under his direction and became one of the premier destinations in the United States. After a devastating fire, (laughs) the sanatorium was not only rebuilt, but also enlarged. It is monstrous, okay? At its zenith, the sprawling health and wellness complex of more than 30 buildings situated on 30 acres accommodated nearly 1,300 guests. It housed a hospital with research facilities, ding, 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 and a nursing school, ding, 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 as well as the sanatorium food company, among others. Following the disfellowship, he, Dr. King Kellogg got in some, Dr. King, Dr. Kellogg got in some scruffle with him. So he went through a disfellowship, well, according to them, right, in 1907. The physician stated that he and his employees were independents who did not belong to any church and that the sanitarium promoted the theory of biological living based on Adventist principles. So he devout said that I am not part of that church. Well, you'll have to conclude for yourself if he was part of that. <laughs> Seems to me that they never left each other. But what do I know, right? In 1928, a dis Distinct 14-story addition to the main building, the Towers, was constructed. That doesn't sound good on any level, right? The Great Depression forced the institution to constrict and sell assets to serve its debt. I'm sure it was a nonprofit without even looking, right? In 1942, the signature main building was purchased by the U.S. Army and converted into the Percy Jones Army Hospital. And the sanatorium moved to the former Phelps Sanatorium building. The hospital was disbanded in the 50s, and the facility was managed by the General Services Administration. That's the government, I think. In 2003, it was redirected to some other federal center. 
1957, the floundering wellness institution was taken over by their big enemies, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, <laughs> which operated under a different name until 1993 when it was sold. <laughs> so, okay, even after he left the church during the middle of his life, due to disagreements over books he'd written, he would continue to promote church doctrine throughout the institution. And when I was reading through some of these um, shows about them, about the circumcision part that I'll get to in a minute here, um, somebody posted this, and it was pretty good. They said, my favorite, my favorite argument for circumcision is about penile infection. As far as I know, we treat infections with antibiotics, not amputation. So what do, the, what do these people think about circumcision, right? You know, the, the rulers, right? The world health people. The position of the world's major medical associations are polarized. Now, this is like right now, okay? We're in 2021. <laughs> the World Health Organization, UNAIDS, and American medical organizations generally hold the belief that elective circumcision of babies and ch children in developed countries carries moderate health benefits that outweigh small risk. While European medical organizations generally hold the belief that it carries risks that are not counterbalanced by its so-called medical benefits. Outside of areas with high HIV AIDs prevalence, no major medical organization recommends circumcising all males. And no major medical organization recommend, recommends banning the procedure. Ethical and legal questions regarding informed consent and human rights have been raised over routine circumcision. Boy, have they ever. They say that male circumcision reduces the risk of HIV infection among heterosexual men in sub-Saharan Africa. So they're now saying that if we circumcise the men in Africa, we will save them from HIV, right? Well, first we have to believe that HIV is correct, right? So, poor Africa. Yeah, I looked at the map of um, countries where they do circumcision. Um, I would encourage you to look at that map. Um, just do circumcision worldwide 2021 or whatever, and you will find that the United States and Africa are the are they're lit up like bulletin boards. Okay, the rate of circumcision in these countries in Africa, they've continued to chokehold them. Unlike this country, they've gone down. But let me get back here a bit. So they went on to say the effectiveness of using circumcision to prevent HIV in the developed world is unclear. So it's unclear here, but it's very clear there, right? <laughs> the WHO World Health Organization does not recommend circumcision for HIV prevention in men who have sex with men. <laughs> okay. Circumcision is also associated with reduced rates of cancer-causing forms of human, that HPV, and UTIs. Well, I don't believe any of this stuff. It also decreases the risk of cancer of the penis via effectively curing, I don't know, <laughs> Okay. The Western world. It's interesting. In this country, I was looking at maps. I found that you can look at hospital circumcisions by region, United States, okay? Who had the highest rate? Well, the poor people in West Virginia. 
87% of boys there are still being circumcised. 56% um, in the um, most parts of the country. However, California and Nevada, Nevada had the lowest rate. Only 12% of boys were circumcised in Nevada. And these are current data, okay? And we look up to the Minnesota area and stuff, we move up into the 67 and 75% range. So the western part of the states here, at only 25% of the male population, and the other parts, we've got 75, 56. That kind of makes it seem like it's not such a big problem, right? Because we got a population that has all seemed to agree that that was not a good plan. So let me tell you a little bit about what they say about their history. There was a Jewish philosopher that was around the early thousands. He, remember, they write these lies to justify what they're doing now, right? Because if people could look at their horrible lies about history, then we say, oh, yeah, okay, well, they were doing that back then, and maybe they were um, not strapping the babies down the same way. But we're doing it differently. So, yeah, yeah, we get there. So see how it does? It puts it in our minds that, yeah, this is okay. This has always been done this way, right? So that's why they write these backstories for this stuff because that makes us feel like yeah it's always been done but we're doing a little bit better so that's got to be okay so he insisted that faith should be the only reason for circumcision now that's very interesting right he recognized that it was a very hard thing to have done to oneself but that it was done to quell all the impulses of matter and perfect and perfect what is defectively morality. So yeah, at this time he recognized that the foreskin heightened sexual pleasure and reasoned that the bleeding and loss of protective covering rendered the penis weakened and in so doing had the effect of reducing a man's lustful thoughts and making sex less pleasurable. They're saying they knew this in 1200, okay? He also warned that it's hard for a woman with whom an uncircumcised man has had sexual intercourse to separate from him. I don't even follow that at all. He says that a woman who had sex with an uncircumcised man couldn't believe him. I don't know. He also thought that circumcision should be done as early as possible, get this part, as it would not be as likely to be done by someone's own free will. Ding, 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 ding. <clears throat> he claimed that the foreskin prevented semen from reaching the vagina and so should be done in a way to increase the... <clears throat> Talk about equal, evil packages. Hell, they, they sold this deal supposedly as a way to increase the population, not decrease it, right? Okay, he also noted that circumcision should be performed as an effective means to reduce sexual pleasure. I mean, it's right here. I'm not making this stuff up, okay? <laughs> so, the legislators thought good to dock the... No, this is what it says. The legislators thought it was good to dock the organ which ministers to such intercourse, thus making circumcision the symbol of excision. Oh, I don't know. This was also driven in Judaism... Nowhere does faith in science cross paths more than perhaps in the practice of medicine. <clears throat> yeah, really. <clears throat> this medicine deal with the circ... Hold on one second. <clears throat> I'm trying not to cough right in the microphone. This medicine deal 
certainly, <laughs> to me, this seems egged on by religion. But hey, what do I know, right? Um, religion has long claimed access to supernatural power to heal and assist doctors in treatments. And modern medicine has pushed for the recognition of human-led... I don't care about that. Okay. Oh, this is good. The health reform movements of the 19th and early 20th century impacted American and European societies in profound ways. These reforms, while usually represented in a national context, existed in a transatlantic framework that facilitated a multitude of exchanges and transfers. They were just getting us set up. They were just flat out getting this country set up in the early 1800s. Why do you think that? Have you ever looked at the U.S. presidents? Doesn't it seem kind of fishy that we have quite a few that they don't have pictures of? (laughs) I mean, come on, this is all a stage set, okay? This is all a big stage set. So where did I leave off here? Um, Oh, this was was interesting. Um, This transatlantic thing, that was started by John Harvey Kellogg, the surgeon, health reformer, and inventor of cornflakes. He developed the transatlantic network of health reformers, medical practitioners, and scientists to improve his own reforms and establish new ones. This guy was a key, key figure. Through intercultural transfer, Kellogg borrowed, modified, and implemented European health reform practices at his Battle Creek Sanatorium in the United States. Yeah, they took the stuff that Europe wouldn't do and brought it over here, it sounds to me. But hey, I'm just a little bit suspicious at this point. These transfers facilitated development in reform movements such as vegetarianism, light therapy, sex, and eugenics. How much more clear could this be? They basically moved their operation out of Germany or wherever they had it in Europe, and they moved it to this country. Now, I am obviously speculating, but I think my analysis is probably better than most. (laughs) So just think for yourself, okay? In, In some cases, health reform movements were previously semi religious in nature, and Kellogg merely accentuated an already present narrative of religious obligation for reform. These beliefs in salvific, uh, I had to look that up, salvific is um, salvation. So these beliefs in salvation health reform centered around, around Kellogg's desire to perfect the human body physically and spiritually in an attempt to make it fit for translation into heaven. Now here's, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, so let me keep reading here because um, this is pretty strange stuff, isn't it? This is why they've been trying to sell all that transhuman stuff. <clears throat> control your time and they control the narrative. Kellogg dedicated the last 30 years of his life to promoting eugenics. He co-founded the Race Betterment Foundation. Yeah, I hear that race, R-A-C-E. So naturally, I looked that up. And I, I, when I looked it up, I just did a search for it. I ended up on a eugenics page. Surprise, surprise, right? The Race Betterment Foundation was a eugenics, 
and Racial Hygiene Organization, founded in 1914 at Battle Creek, Michigan, by John Harvey Kellogg, due to his concerns over what he perceived as race degeneracy. The foundation supported conferences, publications, and the formations of a eugenics registry in cooperation with the ERO. I don't know what the ERO is. The foundation was sponsored. The foundation also sponsored the Fitter Families Campaign. That was an interesting thing. I think I looked that one up. Fitter Families Campaign from 1928 to the late 1930s. And that campaign funded the Battle Creek College. Eugenics is a set of beliefs and practices which aims aims at improving the genetic quality of the human population. It played a significant role in the history and culture of the United States from the late 1900s into the mid-20th century. Isn't it kind of funny we only find these things around (laughs) mid-1800s? While ostensibly about improving genetic quality, it has been argued that eugenics was more about preserving the position of the dominant groups in the population. Well, I would have to agree with them on that one, right? Otherwise, why wipe out? This, this mutant thing is likely... Oh, let me let me not get there right now. Um, i got to keep here. I'm not doing well today. i, I got to at least try to keep on the same page. So, um, Okay. While about improving genetic quality, it has been argued that it's about preserving the position of the dominant groups in the population. Scholarly research has determined, this is their data, right, that people who found themselves targets of the eugenics movement were those who were seen as unfit for society. The poor, the disabled, the mentally ill, and specific communities of color, and a disproportionate number of those who fell victims to eugenic sterilization initiatives were women who were identified as African American, Hispanic, or Native American. As a result, the United States eugenics movement is now generally associated with racist and Native elements as the movement was to some extent a reaction to demographic and population things. So what happened was things started to change, right? There became concerns over, okay, the economy and social well-being rather than scientific genetics. The found, so yeah, so I think I have that in a minute here. Okay, so the foundation controlled the Battle Creek Food Company. This, this is where I got a little fuzzy here which in turn served as a major source for Kellogg's eugenics program, conferences, and Battle Creek College. I think what it's saying is all along, this eugenics clinic is the one who was in charge of all this, but I'll have to look at that again. Um, Yeah, it looks to me like the eugenics clinic was the one who was funding everything, right? So in his will, Kellogg left his entire estate to the foundation. In 1947, the foundation was worth over 687,000 assets. But yeah, by um, 
1967, that was 20 years after 1947, they only had $492.87 in their bank account. In 1967, the state of Michigan indicted the trustees for squandering the foundation's funds and the foundation closed. See, isn't that kind of typical, right? Typical, typical, typical. Okay, um, this was interesting. Um, because, and, and then I got to zip back here a little bit. I'm going to be zipping back and forth here. What caused all this to stop? Okay. Um, there was this group of eugenics folks. They had planned a fourth Congress. Okay. But it was interrupted by the Great Depression, World War II, and Kellogg's death. So after the war, this is, a, this is their writing, so pay attention to these words. After the war, due to the actions of Nazi Germany in perpetuating the Holocaust, neither better race betterment nor eugenics were acceptable concepts in academic discussion. Yeah, it became unacceptable to talk about experiment on people. Well, you know, that's interesting because they showed us all that Holocaust stuff, right? And then it made it unacceptable to talk about it here. What funny how that worked out, right? Put it over there, made it unacceptable to talk about here. Got everybody lined up to not talk about bad about the Jews. Boy, what a trap we were led into, right? So let me talk a little bit about the current disgusting circumstances. Circumcised men are estimated to constitute 37 to 39% of the world's male population as of 2016. The procedure plays a central role in many cultures and religions. It is integral to Judaism and part of its religious law. And I'll be getting back to, hopefully, the new Jewish laws that are in effect in this country right now. While it is an established practice in Islam, Coptic Christianity, and the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, Circumcision has played an important role in Christian, Christian history and theology. The circumcision, this is their story, right? The circumcision of Jesus is celebrated as a feast day in some literal calendar of many Christian denominations. While Paul, the apostles, teaching that physical circumcision was unnecessary for membership in the New Covenant. So, yeah, they started changing things around and saying, if you want to be a Jew, you got to be circumcised, right? Circumcision is most common among Muslims and Jews. Yeah, they're both fighting. Maybe maybe the Jews are not really fighting with the Muslims. Maybe, maybe that's part of the whole trick here, right? Among whom it is near universal for religious reasons. So, yeah, Muslims and Jews are all getting circumcised. And in Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the United States and Central... Yeah, it is, relatively, it is relatively rare for non-religious reasons in Europe, Latin America, parts of South Africa, and most of Asia. <laughs> okay, various theories have been proposed as to its origin, including as a religious sacrifice. Here we go, sacrifice, right? And as a rite of passage marking a boy's entrance into adulthood. The word circumcision is from Latin meaning to cut around. So, I don't know. Um, it was co-organized with the National Conferences on Race Betterment 
and attempted to create a eugenics registry. I think they're tricking us with this eugenic stuff about boys and adulthood. I think it's just marking people, right? Because what is all this transgender stuff about now? Mutilation, right? So, yeah, I, I think it was just to mark. Well, maybe they wanted to mark themselves so they get their circumcision and everybody knows they're a Jew, right? But they're very proud of who they are, so let's not... And they, they put up penis symbols all over the place and stuff. Come on, these people are all about the penis, right? And they have a strange fashion. Considering that everybody beyond this, like the Kelloggs and all, these are all women dressed up as men, right? So it's a strange fascination with penises, if you ask me. <laughs> Very strange. So, uh, a long discouraging racial mixing, Kellogg was in favor of sterilizing mentally defective persons. See, this is why it happens, because once they declare that we're mentally defective, then everybody agrees that these are probably good procedures to take, right? Evil, coming packages help. Promoting a eugenics agenda while working on the Michigan Board of Health. This was, yeah, this wasn't that long ago, people. And helping to enact authorization to sterilize those deemed mentally defective. They, he... he Put a move to put that into uh, Michigan state law when he was there on the Board of Health. So there was here's some anti-circumcision views. Okay, there's a group that's anti-circumcision. Does involuntary genital cutting meet the criteria for an adverse childhood experience? Given the pervasiveness of newborn male circumcision in the United States, the hidden horror of female gent- genital the female and also the female genital mutilation and the growing body of information regarding lasting harm of gender norming surgery i don't know where they're talking about that in adults abnormal and painful neonatal experiences can manifest in a host of other ways now i'm not going to read all this stuff because it happened to a lot of people so let's not let's not take this and evolve into some sort of guilt trip because um that's sadly it happened okay so um so yeah you know there's information on what they perceive as what the long-term effects are and i'm not going to start speculating but what they did estimate is that currently right now 75 million men are living with surgically altered genitals that's a pretty big number when you consider the population of 330,000, right and then i think i'm just about done here i had one more data point I don't know if I talked about this before. Um, this country, I did talk about the expenditures, but boy, it is really alarming, right? Um, it, per capita healthcare spending is more than twice the average of other. It's just, it's just insane, right? And they've been collecting money for having us work, earn their money because they came up with that whole system, pay back the money for them to mutilate and do eugenics on us. What a system, right? So, anyways, I got to get off here. I'm gonna. Play a couple commercials um, from the set from 1971. Um, one talks about listen to the word. The great American breakfast starts out with sugar, um, and the other one is Babe Ruth. <laughs> Babe Ruth, the famous American baseball player. Well, uh, Babe Ruth is 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 he a babe named Ruth? <laughs> He's a woman, okay. He's a woman. We've been had forever, people. So anyway, so I hopefully I'll get back to this jewelry thing because that is a really fascinating story how they robbed us with jewelry and gold and, and especially diamonds. So anyway, 
Be safe out there. Goodbye for now. The American breakfast, no mistake, starts with sugar, milk, and Kellogg's corn flakes. The breakfast of great Americans like Babe Ruth, the Bambino, the greatest slugger the game has ever known. Babe Ruth, a great American who started out many a morning on the American breakfast. Who knows what great American is eating the American breakfast now? Here you are, Granny. Thanks, I'll try again. <laughs> Where's that there baseball fella? He took off in some of your things. All that running sure makes a fella hungry. Yeah. Sure would like to have some to give my strength back. Like some uh, fresh-boiled golf eggs. I'd rather have something that's crispy and crunchy. Yeah, something with a nice corn taste. Yeah, with cream and sugar. How about some Kellogg's corn flakes? Yeah! yeah. <laughs> you two are sure getting to be city slickers. Corniest flakes anybody makes Kellogg's.